2, verses 6 through 11, the Apostle Paul writes, He will pray each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father of all creation, we thank you for this church and your faithfulness to us. For we don't deserve the grace and forgiveness that you continually offer. But may our thanksgiving and praise not be mere words to the wind, but may they issue from a genuine heart, because you are a fair judge who knows and sees into our heart. We know that you will not be mocked, for we will reap what, you, what we sow. Help us, Lord, to not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we know that we will reap the reward if we do not give up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. How are y'all doing? Great. Great to see you. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 2. We will primarily be walking through those verses that Pat just read. And what I want to do today is I just want to start with hitting rewind and rewinding the tape a little bit to understand and remind us um, what Paul is talking about, what his context is. So understand that the section that we're in right now in chapter 2 is really bracketed by verses uh, chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. So these passages now are the bookends, which hold 119 through 319 together. And so the overall idea here is found in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 1. He says, for in it, that is the gospel, not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew, then the Gentile. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So that's his point. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, and it's revealed from faith to faith, from Abraham to Christ, from first to last, okay? Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is also being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God is revealing in the gospel his righteousness, and he's also revealing against the unrighteousness of our culture or the unrighteousness of man uh, his wrath, okay? And then in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, this is the other end of the discussion here. This is the conclusion. But now, apart from the law, the works of the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. In other words, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile on this matter. And there's no distinction also between the immoral person that he describes in chapter 1, verses 18 through 30, to, and the person who is a hypocritical person condescending, uh, condemning moralist in chapter 2. So now we dealt with the first five verses last week. We're going to look at the rest of us. So he's contrasting two things. He's contrasting the way of righteousness versus the way of unrighteousness and their destinations. 
We must understand that Paul is leading us to an explanation of righteousness. How do we become righteous? How do we, how do we get righteous before God? And that's where this discussion today is leading. And so the verses we're looking at today is a link in that chain. But to get there, Paul must first, in no uncertain terms, tell us what unrighteousness is. And so far, he's defined it in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. So far, he's defined it as any form of idolatry or atheism, that is the degoding of God, the dethroning of God, that results in flagrant rebellion of God's moral decree. So now this is removing God from the picture, denying his existence in whatever form that takes, and then living on under our own authority, resulting in our own morality, a morality that we have contrived, a custom-made, tailor-made system, system of morality. So he's, he's uh, described this as disgraceful behavior. Romans 2, 1 through 5, he's also said it, it's unrighteousness is any form of hypocrisy which condemns those who live in moral depravity. So unrighteousness... Uh, also includes any hypocrite who stands in the place of God as judge to condemn others for their moral depravity when he says, you do the same kinds of things. You and I do the same kinds of things. And now he's going to add one more to it in the rest of chapter 2, and that is just empty religion. That is empty, changeless religion is also equally unrighteous. And so, verses 6 through 11, we're going to look at these today. Number one, if you're following along in your outline, uh, you can follow, you can track with the message today in your bulletin. Number one, God's judgment is unbiased. The first thing he says is that God's judgment is unbiased, an unbiased assessment of everyone's works. God's judgment is an unbiased assessment of everyone's works. He starts in verse 6. Chapter 2, he says, he will repay each one, that is each person, according to his works. That's a direct quote from Proverbs 24, 12. He says, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. Now turn over to chapter 3 really quickly. Chapter 3, Romans 3, verse 11, and notice what he says here. Verse 10 and 11, he says, there is no one righteous, not even one, not a single one. And there is no one who understands. And there is no one who seeks God. There is no one who seeks God. So who are the people in verse 7 that seek glory, honor, and immortality? Now, if you look up all of these words, the word seek and the word well-doing and the words glory, honor, and immortality in the New Testament we don't have time to go through all of those passages today, or else we would be here an hour. I'm happy to do that. You guys want to stay? Well, that would be super fun for me. But all of those words are in reference to Christians. It's Christians who are the seekers. It's Christians who seek glory, honor, and resurrection immortality. Those things are associated with believers. So what he's doing here is he's identifying believers who have already, by faith, embraced Christ, trusted in Christ. And then he says, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Verse 9, 
There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil. First to the Jew, you see God is fair. He offered salvation first to the Jew. He's going to offer judgment first to the Jew. Uh, first to the Jew and then to the Greek or the Gentile. But then glory, honor, and peace, that is reconciliation for everyone who does what is good. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. So God's judgment is unbiased, it's impartial, and it's an assessment based on everyone's works. The life that has been lived in the body. And so this reflects uh, Old Testament doctrine very well. And this is consistent with what the New Testament teaches. Jeremiah 17.10. I don't have time uh, today to read all the passages in the Old Testament that affirm this. We'd be here all day. But Jeremiah 17.10 sums it up very nicely. God says, I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. When God judges us as sinners, that judgment is just. We are receiving our just desserts. And Jesus also affirms this Old Testament teaching. John 5, 28 and 29, he says, do not be amazed at this. Jesus says, because a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good things for the resurrection of life, to the resurrection of life. But those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus is clearly teaching here. He is clearly saying that at the end of the age, what is going to happen is there's going to be this resurrection. And it's going to be the reward of those who have followed the righteous pass, uh, path or followed an unrighteous path. And Paul affirms this as well, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. God's judgment is impartial, and it's an impartial assessment of everyone's works. Peter agrees with this as well. 1 Peter 1.17, he says, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially, well, he's made our point there, hasn't he? According to each one's works, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. So understand this is a very Jewish way of thinking. God is going to reward the righteous with eternal life and punish the wicked with wrathful judgment. So I want to look a little bit closer at this verse 7. Now what Paul is doing rhetorically is he's capturing the attention of the moralist. In fact, I, I would argue that he's holding the moralist's attention because in verses 1 through 5, he really, really offended them. Now, he's offended the immoral person, the profligate sinner in chapter 1, and then he turns to the Jewish and the Stoic philosopher. He turns to these moralists, and he, he's an equal opportunity offender. He tells them all, you're all under God's wrath, the moralist and the immoral person. And now in verse 6, he wants to keep their attention. I sense that Paul is thinking he doesn't want to shut the conversation down. He doesn't want to chase them away. So he makes this statement that at first blush, on the first pass when you read it, seems to really warm their heart. And what I think he's doing is he's casting his bait out, waiting for them to take it. He sets the hook and then just reels them in. To his argument, brings them into his argument. He anticipates their warm reception of this statement on its surface. 
And then he proceeds to show them just how impossible a goal this is, how impossible it is apart from faith, just how futile religious affiliation is apart from grace, just how empty external devotion is without the presence of the Holy Spirit to consecrate and set apart the heart and the conscience, to energize the believer toward well-doing. And so what he's going to do now is he's going to tell them that this thing that I just said that warms your heart and resonates with your deepest sympathies and is the thing that you want more than anything actually is totally unavailable to you. You can't have it apart from faith. You can't have it apart from grace. And so he uses this word, uh, this phrase in verse 7, eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is just what you think it is. Eternal life is literally translated life evermore, life everlasting, life without end. So in the New Testament, eternal life has both a quantitative and a qualitative aspect. The quantitative aspect is it never ends. Your life persists. It goes on and on. But it's not a miserable life. It's a good life. It's a perfected life in resurrection. And so there's a qualitative aspect to it as well. It's the God kind of life that he gives and bestows upon us. And so there's some things we need to understand as we interpret this verse with other verses. There's some things we need to understand the New Testament teaches about eternal life. First of all, eternal life begins when we believe in God's Son. Eternal life, this kind of life that we want, that has been promised to us in Scripture, it begins when we believe in God's one and only Son. Now, we often quote John 3.16, but I want you to see John uh, 3.14 and 15. Jesus says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. What are we believing in? We're believing in the Son that was lifted up. On what? The cross. He's lifted high on the cross, and what are we believing? We're believing that the work that He has done on the cross is done for us and to us. So believing is nothing more than the response of trusting reception. It is the response to receive something that has been promised to you to trust it. Eternal life is also bestowed upon those who do the will of God. Jesus makes this clear. It's bestowed upon those who do the will of God or the work of God. What is the will of God? Well, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they pose him this question because they're always haggling over this issue with each other. What's the thing in Torah? Like, what's the key? What's the key in Torah law that will get us eternal life. Remember the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and what does he ask? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response shocks him. And now so the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they say, what are the works? What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. And Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Now this statement is shocking to them. Because it's a biting irony. The work of God is actually no work at all. It's the trusting reception that God has sent his son. He has been lifted high on the cross and paid our penalty for our sins. Now this phrase, the work of God, is in the Greek. It's called the genitive case. I don't think in English we have a genitive case. But the words of God are possessive. The genitive case is the case of possession and description. And so you can translate that in one of two ways. 
as an objective genitive or a subjective genitive. Isn't this fun? You getting a Greek lesson today? I know, all of you, you, all of you just sat up and now you're paying attention because you're getting Greek grammar. And so you could translate that as an objective or a subjective genitive. Now, if you translate it as an objective genitive, what that simply means is that God is the object of the work. God receives the work from you. If you translate that as a subjective genitive, what that means is that God is the one doing the work. So if you translate it that way, it means this is God's work. In other words, that's what Jesus is responding to them. You're asking me what the works are that you need to perform for God. I'm telling you, God's work is you believing in in His Son. Now, whether it's translated one way or the other, essentially it is clearly an irony because Jesus is saying, here's the work of God to receive. With open and empty hands, the free gift of grace that is delivered to faith. Eternal life is also to know God through His Son, Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. John 17, 3, Jesus said it clearly. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. As we stated last week, there are going to be people in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, I'm going to be the judge of your eternal destiny, the judge of your eternal status. And there are going to be people who come to me on that day, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, look at all of the wonderful religious works that we did. And they're going to pull out this religious resume and try to flash it before the judge. And the judge is going to say, get away from me, evildoer. I never knew you. I never knew you. What their eternity is going to hinge on is whether or not they had a relationship with Jesus by faith. Now, it's good to do good works. And we're going to find out in the rest of the New Testament that the New Testament encourages us that this is to be the life of the believer sanctified, holy, do-goodery. That's in the dictionary. It's there. Trust me. But this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know the one whom you have sent by faith. Eternal life is also the reign of grace through the righteousness of Christ. Romans 5, 21. It says, just as sin reigned in death, this is our theme scripture for the book of Romans, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So understand that the grace that saves us also trains us. The grace that delivers us and saves us also transforms us in sanctification into the image of God's Son. This too is eternal life. And eternal life is a gift. Paul says it clearly. Romans 6.23, he says, For the wages of sin is death, But the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the statement in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, Paul is trying to keep the moralist who is admittedly uneasy by verses 1 through 5. He's just deeply offended them and he's trying to keep them in the discussion. He seems to hold out the hope that their doing good will result in eternal life. And then he's going to reveal to them, this doesn't apply to you unless you are in faith unless you have come to Christ by faith. So as we will see, their hopes are dashed to pieces on the rocks. Number two, God's judgment is that all who sin also perish. All who sin perish. Who sins? Who does? You do. (laughs) All of us. And this is God's judgment across the board. 
Verses 12 through 16, he says, for all who sin without the law. Now, this paragraph, let me just warn you, is going to be hopelessly confusing unless you understand that sometimes when Paul uses the word namas or the word law, he's referring to Moses' law. And in other places, he's referring to it as the moral law written on the heart of the Gentile. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to translate it for you in context, okay? So it, it makes a little bit more sense. Verse 12, he says, for all who sin without Moses' law will also perish without the law of Moses. And all who sin under the law of Moses will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law of Moses are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law of Moses will be justified. So that's the standard. What's the standard? Doing the law. To what degree? We're going to find out. We're going to find out that the bar is insanely high. It's impossibly high. So the standard, the question is, who can actually do or perform the law to God's satisfaction? Verse 14, so when Gentiles who do not have by nature, that is to say they weren't raised as Jews, they, didn't, they weren't raised in the synagogue, they haven't heard the, the Hebrew scriptures read to them all of their life. He says, when they do not by nature have the law of Moses, they do what the law of Moses demands, for they are a moral law, unto themselves, even though they do not have the law of Moses. They show that the work of the law, that is the moral law, is written, etched on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse them or even excuse them on the day when God judges people, what people have kept in secret, according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. So what does the Gentile without the Torah have? What does he have? He has the moral of God, law of God written on his heart, etched in his soul. And what he says here is that both Jew and Gentile alike will be condemned. They will perish whether you have the Torah or you don't. And so he says Gentiles will perish without Moses' law. They will perish without Moses' law. Now, the word perish is used in the New Testament to, me, to mean to be condemned, or to receive condemnation by God. So it doesn't just mean to die. There are lots of ways to say to die in the New Testament, but this word perish most often refers to being condemned before God's judgment seat. John 3.16, we all know that verse. Look at verses 14 through 18. This is how Jesus defines it. So just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in such a way, in this way, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not what? Will not perish, but they'll have eternal life. So what's the opposite of perishing? Having eternal life. And then he explains it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came to save us from condemnation. And anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already under the sentence of condemnation because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. What is he saying here? How does he define perishing? Perishing is being condemned. Per perishing is standing before the bench of God's justice and receiving a just condemnation for our sin. So when he says in Romans chapter 2, for all who sin without the law, that is the Gentiles who don't have Moses' law, will perish apart from it, he means be condemned. Why? Because God has written it on our hearts. The Gentiles know better. They are without excuse. This is what he's saying. 
Paul also agrees with this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 18. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, you have wasted your time in believing in him and believing in his resurrection. And you're still just in your sins. And if you are still just in your sins, those then who have fallen asleep. Now, Jews refer to death in three ways. When they refer to physical death, not spiritual or social death, they use the phrase fallen asleep because it's a metaphor of physical death. So he's talking here about physical death. He says, those then who have fallen asleep, those Christians who have died physically in Christ have also perished. Now, he's not saying that those who have died have also died. That would make no sense. He's saying those who have physically perished, those who have physically died will will also stand before the bar of God's condemnation, his justice. So Gentiles who lack Moses' law covenant still acknowledge the natural laws of creation and conscience. And when non-Jews who do by nature that which the law requires, hear the word, just means instinctively, naturally, as a matter of the heart, they demonstrate that there there is a law working in their conscience. And while they may not have Moses' law court, they do have an inner courtroom consisting of their thoughts and their conscience and God's word. So now here's the real shocker. He says Gentiles will perish without Moses' law. And he goes on to say that Jews will perish with Moses' law. So Gentiles perish, they're condemned without it. The Jews are condemned with it. How can this be so? How can this be? Aren't they the people of God? Weren't they the ones promised this covenant and promised righteousness? Weren't they the ones originally given this this promise, this hope of resurrection life? They were. And Paul is going to go on to say that the righteousness that was established in Moses' Torah, in the Old Testament, the bar is just too high. Moses agreed with this. Deuteronomy 6.25 says, Righteousness will be ours if we are careful to follow every one of these commands before the Lord our God as he commanded us. How many commands? How many? Most of them? (laughs) No. All of them. Righteousness will be ours if we follow all of the commands to the letter. Every one. Did they do it? I think they didn't. The reason why these Jews that he's talking to are in Rome is because they're the diaspora. They've been dispersed from Jerusalem because of their national sins. Now, he's going to address this. We're going to look at this part next week. But he's going to say corporately and privately, everyone has broken these commands at so many levels, at levels you're not even aware of. If it were remotely possible for them to live up to this bar of righteousness, this standard of righteousness, then they wouldn't even need their atonement system. What's the atonement system in the tabernacle in the temple for? Go back and read Leviticus, those passages which describe those festivals of Yom Kippur and those atonement sacrifices. Why do they need them? Because they sin in ways they don't even know. (laughs) They're oftentimes not even aware of how they're sinning against the Lord. Inside out. Listen to what James writes. James 2.10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point of it is guilty of breaking all of it. It's impossible. 
So understand that God impartially judges according to our works, the works of obedience to the law. And both Jew and Gentile alike, those who have the Torah and those who don't have it, will likewise perish. They will receive God's judicial condemnation for not having lived up to the law. What is our hope? What hope does anyone have? Jesus. That's right. Now I want to end with this. I want to end with the passage in Psalm 19. If you want to just find, your, find that in your Bible and put a little a little tab there or a little bookmarker. Because I feel like Psalm chapter 19 is really the substrate. I mean, I feel like it's really the operating system that Paul is working off of, Romans 1 through 3. And so in Romans chapter 1, what he says there is he says that what is so obvious and clear and evident in nature, it should be obvious to the Gentile. It should be obvious to everyone in the world. He's reflecting Psalm 19. And then when he moves on to talk about the law, he's reflecting Psalm 19. And when he moves on to talk about matters of the heart, the need for for there to be a transformation of heart, a consecration at the heart level, he's reflecting Psalm 19. I want to read just about the whole thing to you. Psalm 19, 1 through 4. It's beautiful. The poet says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the expanse, the universe, proclaims the works of his hands. And day after day, they pour out speech. And night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There is no language. There are no words where their voice cannot be heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. Sir, here we have a claim that the cosmos, the the creation itself, pours forth speech, communicates on every corner of the globe what God is like, that he is great and glorious and immortal and eternal and divine and the creator. And then he reflects from that revelation in nature to the revelation of God's word. Here's what he says about the Torah. He says, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. Now, the word instruction there is the word Torah, is the word law. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous, and they are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, dripping from honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warmed, warned by them, and in keeping with them, there is an abundant reward. Now, this revelation is particular to the Jew. He looks in his scriptures and his Hebrew Bible. He looks at the written word of God, his instructions, his precepts, his ordinances, and what kind of descriptors does he use? He says they're perfect, they're trustworthy, they're right, they're radiant, they're pure, they're reliable, desirable, and righteous, and lead to abundant living. But something is missing. Something he suspects is not right in his heart, and he needs more than mere external observance to this glorious law, this radiant, beautiful, pure law. He he needs more. He needs a consecration at the heart level. He goes on to say, who perceives 
his own unintentional sins. Who knows them? Cleanse me, he cries out to God. Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me, and then I will be blameless and cleansed from the blatant rebellion of my heart. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock, my redeemer. So he acknowledges that everyone has access, both Jew and Gentile, to the light of God's revelation in conscience and in creation. And the Jew in particular has the light of God's revelation in his word, but the dilemma here is that the psalmist perceives that even though he embraces the Torah, the commands outwardly, externally, he's got an internal spiritual problem which causes him to cry out to God and ask for cleansing, to be forgiven of those sins hidden in his heart that he's not even aware of. What a powerful passage. This is exactly the train of Paul's thought. This is exactly where he's taking us. Next week, what we'll learn from verses 17 to the end of the chapter, I want to encourage you to read ahead. I want to encourage you to study that because this is the point that he is going to make to his fellow Hebrew people. He is going to say that real consecration happens at the heart level as God sets us apart by the Holy Spirit. And that's the person who verse 7 describes Verse 7 describes that person who by persistence in doing good pursues the glory, the honor, and the immortality of resurrection life. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up this morning. You will bow your head and close your eyes. I want to lead you this morning into a, a prayer of commitment. As the people of God, as the people who know God's word and who have received his revelation and who know him well, I want to encourage you to make this prayer your heart's prayer. God, we understand this morning that unrighteousness is flagrant and proud disobedience to your laws and your decrees. And we also understand equally that to sit in judgment to condemn others, condemning them as if we are the judge, is equally, equally worthy of condemnation. We are not the judge. And Father, today we embrace the role you have given us. We do not sit on the judge's bench. We sit on the witness stand. And God, we we commit ourselves to being witnesses. Witnesses to our fellow man, testifying to the truth, not being assimilated into the world of darkness by its darkness, And that as we testify to the truth and proclaim this gospel which reveals the righteousness of God and that you're revealing your wrath against all godlessness, we pray that the Spirit would energize us. We pray that the Spirit would set us apart. We pray that the Spirit would give us boldness in sharing the truth and that the Holy Spirit himself would bring conviction to our culture, to our city, to the people that we know of their sin and certain judgment. And we pray that conviction will bring redemption. That conviction will bring forgiveness of sins and eternal life in the hearts of so many who are lost. And we pray that you would cleanse them from their sins, both hidden and their open rebellion and parades in the streets. And we pray that you would help us to be bold ambassadors, faithful witnesses to your truth. God, we ask that in the name of Jesus.
Would you make us that? And thank you for helping us by the Spirit to take this word to heart today. You judge impartially. You judge according to our works, but you save us by faith. And God, as the judge, you, everyone is under your judgment, but you save us. You save us by grace through faith. Help us to receive that promise today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.